This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Joel, today we're back for season two. Surprised we even got through season one. That was pretty cool and pretty amazing from, I think, from my perspective, from our perspective, that we had such a successful season and so happy to be back with our listeners for season two. Me too. Miraculous. We made it through season one and even more miraculous, we're here for season two. So Joel, as we look forward to season two, I know we're going to try a few things differently this year and we're going to do some of the things the same. Hopefully our listeners will bear with us as we shift things up a bit and we would encourage folks to get hold of us either through Twitter or through freerangehumanspod at gmail.com with thoughts or ideas as we try some different things. Give us your feedback as to how you think they went. I think that there's a little too much self-deprecating Canadian in the way that you're pitching our season. I think we need a little more, a little more Trump. This is going to be the best season of podcasting ever made to man. And each episode and each moment of every episode is going to be the best of the best that you've ever heard. Realistically, somewhere in between that and Rod's opening. Okay. A little bit, a little bit more Trump. Hmm. So Rod, what have you been up to since we, uh, since we last saw each other? Had a glorious summer here. The weather, uh, we have been so blessed here on Vancouver Island. The weather has been amazing and continues to be amazing. So we, we sort of hung out at home and it was a great chance to recharge and just settle in a little bit and do some thinking and do some reading and get geared up for the fall and, and this new school year and new podcasts and so on. It was just a really nice family time for us. How about you, Joel? I mean, I also had a very rejuvenating summer that now feels a long time away now that we're into October. A couple of highlights from the last month or so, my two and a half year old Theo started preschool and we went from the first week where he had to be pried out of our arms, crying and carried in by the preschool teacher to uh, two weeks later, him saying on a Saturday, okay, ready to go to school. There's no school today. Why not? So that, that feels like progress. And then I'm um, doing something in one of my classes this year, which I'm excited about the Make the World a Better Place project. As we've talked about a lot on the pod, there's a tendency for people when they get into senior roles in the system to think that they have all the wisdom. And if everybody would just do things the way they wanted, the world would be better. And I, I really deeply do not believe that wisdom is scattered across lots of different roles and things never go well from that standpoint you know, having my students pick some relatively small issue and some community that they're part of and, you know, go out and listen to people and try to understand what their concerns are and build a coalition and try some things and see how it goes and iterate and so forth. I'm kind of hoping that if we build that way of working into what we do with students, it'll carry forward out in the field. That sounds amazing. In fact, it sounds a little Marshall Gansey in your in, in that approach of let's do real things in the real world, even if they're small, and learn from those and see how they see how things go. Yeah, Marshall's class. I think we talked about this on his episode with him that 
he sends people out to organize on the first day. They come in and they sit down and within 15 minutes, they're sent back out to go organize something. And people have consistently described Marshall's class as inspiring and life-changing. And so I am trying to channel a little of Marshall's spirit. That's brilliant. And and that hands-on learning and, and I think modeling that, you know, all the answers aren't held at the top or in a book or someplace, but they're also out there in the real world. And I know you have a heavy teaching load this fall, Joel. I'm not sure how your, uh, how your knees aren't buckling under the load that you're carrying there at school and now starting up the pod again. I took a long walk with a friend this morning, which was great. I went to see a session by Ron Heifetz and he said something like, preserve those walks with friends and other sort of moments of reprieve. You need them most when you're most likely to cancel them, is what he said. You, you need them most when you're most likely to cancel them. I think that is true. When you're busiest, that's when you're like, oh, this is a peripheral thing. I don't really need, don't really have time to go for this walk with a friend. And he said, that's the time then you really do need it. And I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of wisdom to that. I think that's a great new name for our podcast. You need us most when you <laughs> are tempted to cancel us. No. Who okay. would be tempted to cancel us? I don't. Can we be canceled? Can podcasts be canceled? Anyway. Today, we thought, as we kick off season two, we would talk about, can we do Canadian-style education reform in the U.S.? Rod is from Canada. I'm from the U.S. And we're both enamored of certain things that are happening in Canada, particularly in B.C. And so we thought we would sort of unpack what some of those things were and then think about whether those things could travel to other, to other contexts. So yeah, I can set up that more specifically in a second, but Brad, do you want to say anything sort of Canadian pride-y before we get started? It's not our way, John. I see. To self-advocate. But yeah, I mean, certainly conversations that you and I have had and that we've had elsewhere in, in our lives. I, I certainly hear when I speak and talk to colleagues globally, sort of that, well, that might be fine in BC, but here we and I often like to push back on that a little bit. I don't think there's anything wacky or weird about, about us. I mean, there are wacky and weird things about us here on the left coast, but I don't think it's particularly different than in anywhere else necessarily or too different. And I think there's lots to learn from, from the work that's happened in BC and other parts of Canada and other jurisdictions around the world. So I think it's a, certainly a conversation uh, worth pursuing and one that, that is, I think, a question that's happening, like I say, globally as well other jurisdictions saying, can we do it this way? Is, is this a viable approach to transformation? Yeah. I mean, one way that I got into this is, so I came of age in the, the aughts in the U.S. And in the U.S. at the time, there was a big push around No Child Left Behind. And there was a big reform movement that was emphasizing test scores, standards, accountability, charter schools, uh, that sort of stuff. And then there were people who were pushing back on that. And, you know, there's a coalition called Defend Our Public Schools. And we're saying these reformers were coming to gut or privatize public schools and they should be defended as a beacon of democracy and a public good and so forth. And I, I really felt that neither of these camps fit me very well. The first camp, because it was leading to a lot of teaching to the test and a lot of demoralization of people in the teaching profession. And then the second camp, because 
it just seemed too conservative, like too defensive of the status quo. And having grown up in Baltimore, I mean, even pre No Child Left Behind, there are lots and lots of schools where kids weren't being challenged and weren't having a great education. As I learned more about Canada and other countries around the world, I sort of came to see that there was a third path and that that path was roughly around developing a moral purpose for schools and building capacity among teachers, trying to work with unions rather than demonizing them, remembering that the most important ingredient in any change effort is the people doing the work on the ground. And if you don't get their hearts and minds and time and effort, nothing you do will be sustainable. And that really proved true in the U.S., that round of school reform, in addition to not really changing much in terms of outcomes, really did burn through lots and lots of people in ways that didn't seem seem good. And so you might think of that version of Canada as the sort of Michael Fullen, uh, Ontario version of school reform, trust and capacity building and sustainability and moral purpose. And then as I began to learn about BC, it seemed like in addition to those elements, there was also an element of reinvention and innovation as opposed to simply improvement and a little less top down and a little more bottom up and the incorporation of indigenous perspectives. And that seemed even better still to me. And so now when I teach students, mostly in the U.S., you know, we spend a lot of time learning in some depth about what's happening in Canada and particularly in B.C. And my students have a little bit of that reaction that you described, Rod, the kind of that's nice for them. But there are a lot of features of the U.S., they say, that would mitigate against some of those strategies. So in any case, we're going to sort of unpack some of the dimensions of the things that we're talking about, but let's just start with the big picture question, which is, do you think you can do love, trust, and pixie dust in the U.S.? Or is this specific to Canada? And a second question related to that is, am I imagining Canada to be more utopian than it actually is? So what do you think? The grass is always greener across the border. There is some of that. I think there there are a couple of sort of national traits at play. We have a pretty deeply seated belief that high quality public education for everyone is key to this. And we have private schools here, of course, and independent schools, but the vast majority of our kids in this country go to public schools. And we're nowhere near to the end of the journey, but we've worked really hard to have the learning experiences of kids, regardless of which school you go to, to be more the same than different. Now, of course, there's a long way to go when we have lots of inequity, but we believe that's the path to travel on and that rising tides float all boats. It's to our collective best interest to to have quality education, not just for my own kids, but for all the kids. That makes things better for all of us. I think another central feature to this, certainly in the work we did in BC, was transformation rather than just reform or improvement, although we know we have to ride those two horses simultaneously. But with transformation comes the ability to collectively aspire to something bigger. There's no blame in that game. It's about all of us together will co-conspire to build something new. 
as opposed to blaming teachers or blaming principals or blaming government for not having enough money or all what whoever it is you want to blame. It's you can talk about the system. The system was designed in the past to do these things. We are no longer living in the past. We can all collectively get behind moving to something that's fit for the new purpose. Taking away that blame, I think, was really an important feature of the work in Canada, certainly in British Columbia, and it really helped to build collective energy towards this. No, I don't believe any group is feeling put upon as we work down that road. Yeah. Can I pick up on that theme a little bit before you keep going? I have found that also in the work that I've done, that the frame of the school system was constructed at the beginning of the 20th century for the purpose of efficiently processing and batch sorting kids. And we're at a different moment and we have much higher aspirations for what we want to do for our students and the structure that we're all sitting in isn't really constructed very well for the purposes we now say we want to achieve. And thus, it's not the teacher's fault. It's not the principal's fault. It's not the superintendent's fault. Like in a sense, we're all working in a a house that isn't the building that we want to be in. I do think you're right. That generates a lot of energy around, okay, well, what could we construct instead? And it removes blame. And it allows from a political lens, it allows, you know, Governments who've been in power for a while, if they start changing something that appears to be working okay, and certainly our education system in in BC, in Canada in general, and in BC, you know, we've always been towards the top of PISA and our kids learn well and and are comparatively high skilled and allows them politically to start to make some changes and not be seen to be the architects of a bad, why are you changing it? You're to blame for the old system then, as opposed to, well, you know, the old system's the old system and it's been there for 150 years and it's time to get someplace different. So what allows us to take the politics out of it a little bit, the partisanship out of the politics, and just talk about restructuring systems. And and that's been really helpful. The work here in BC has spanned a left-right shift in politics and hasn't really lost steam. And I think that's true in other provinces as well. Not all of them, but in, in many of them, that, that the work has continued regardless of more or less regardless of the stripe of the party that's in power. And, and part of that is because there's this common sense, this common idea that we're trying to rebuild a system that's just really old and not fit for purpose. Also, to your point, the very first thing you said, you know, as you go around the world, people are like, well, that's good for BC, but can we do it here? You know, if you look at Fullen's book, Leading in a Culture of Change, the chapters are things like, these are literally the chapters, moral purpose, managing change, building relationships, deep learning, and coherence. And so that might not be transformational enough for you, Rod, but as a blueprint for how to make moderate change, that's a pretty good blueprint in almost any context, in almost any organization. Like you you build, you don't just state the purpose. It's not just on a mission statement. It's got to have some kind of moral depth to it. And people need to be involved in co-constructing it. There's this sort of complicated dance of trying to encourage change. And then all of the work is done through relationships and the depth of relationships is really the key to almost everything. And then towards what end, some something around deep learning and 
the pieces should in some way be coherent rather than going in different directions. So I think if you if we break down some of the elements of the, say, the sort of Ontario Canadian approach to school reform, I, that's good advice in mm -hmm. most states in the US. That's a good advice for pretty much any kind of organization you might be you might be running. So I completely agree. And I think what Michael's done is articulated that sort of the big building blocks that you need to have in the foundation of the work, regardless of where you are. If you don't have collective moral purpose and so on, people just won't do the hard work because it's really hard. <laughs> it's not just learning a new assessment practice. It's really hard work to, to rethink systems and live through that transformational change period. So I think he, he really puts his finger on it. And I wouldn't quibble that it's potentially transformational. I think there's other things that can add on to that to make that more transformational. But I think Michael's done a brilliant job of articulating the starting places, the big boulders that need to be in place uh, mm -hmm. for, for the work. That's a great transition to my next question, which is let's talk about British Columbia as opposed to Ontario. I know that you sometimes have a bit of a friendly rivalry with Michael and with the Ontario model of school reform. Tell me, like, how do you see what's happening in BC different from Ontario? And for the non-Canadians among us, is BC a different place than Ontario? And how does that affect what's been happening? BC is a different place than Ontario. I've jokingly said before that I think the colonial founders of, of our nations may have got the border in the wrong place. It may be it should be running north-south, somewhere around Manitoba, Minnesota kind of a thing. There's lots of similarities in the West and lots of similarities in the East, and things don't always translate when they cross the prairies or the Rockies or wherever that, that border might be. So you're saying you would take California and Washington as part of Western Canada slash U.S. and leave us with Ontario and Nova Scotia and stuff <laughs> over here on the East Coast? Yeah, I don't want to abandon anybody, but but I think you know there there's some cultural similarities of of experience. Alberta, our the big prairie province just to the east of of BC, is sort of Texas north, right? Like it feels so much more like uh, you know it's oil country, and I'm sure they could be filming Yellowstone there and all that kind of stuff, right? A different cultural feel to it, and a, and a different ethos than Lotus Land out here on the west coast, where we farm other products and probably consume other products. Anyway, so I think the work that's happened in Ontario, one, Ontario is a way bigger system. It's a much bigger province than British Columbia. More kids. I wouldn't say more geographically diverse, but has huge geography to contend with. But Ontario has taken a bit of a, a more of a hybrid approach, I guess, as Michael's articulated, because Michael's done so much of the work in Ontario. He's architected so much of that work. And to their credit, they were often out of the gates first. So they were trying things first and they were trying to initiate conversations and trying to do things. And I think they've struck a kind of middle of the road approach to transformation slash reform that kind of comes in the middle of those two things. More top down than certainly British Columbia's approach, trying to get more places to do more things the same way. A tighter approach than BC's, and there could be all kinds of reasons for that. It's a politically different place. Like I say, it was first onto this turf in Canada, and 
you know, they were kind of feeling their way and trying to figure out how that all works. And there's a, a different sort of, uh, again, uh, I'll get in trouble and please send your cards and letters care of Jal Meda when you come to complain about what I'm about to say. But there's, I used to joke, because I grew up in Ontario, went to school in Ontario, that people in Ontario wanted to work really hard so they could retire out to British Columbia uh, and, <laughs> and get out of Ontario. And I know that's not true, but they're, I don't know, you look around our street here and you go, hmm, man, it's kind of true. And out here in BC, we go, well, we're already here. So there's a hustle bustle, a, a northeastern industrial hustle bustle sense to the place. And Ontario was also first amongst the provinces, I think, with massive immigration coming in from around the world and have done such a great job. I mean, Toronto is often considered one of the most diverse cities in the world. And, and they've, they've managed that so well. I think that they've worked really hard, still lots to do, but they've worked really hard at that and have that to consider where that's growing in BC and Vancouver is a very, very, very diverse city as well. But I, I don't think to the extent, extent of Ontario. So BC's approach was less top down. I believe we spent longer in the, in the early phases of the work around helping people understand the need for transformation and to build collective will towards that. And really spent a long time, years, getting that sense deep into the, in, into the ethos that it's, it's no one's fault for where we are. Yep. Before we go into depth on BC, can I just put a bow on Ontario? When I was studying, Bob Schwartz and I wrote a chapter about the, I don't know, 2003 to 2011 or so reforms in Ontario. And those were around increasing math and literacy rates and around increasing graduation rates and those sorts of things. And there was a lot of effort to, pre-2003, there had been a lot of really intense fights with the unions, including ads on TV saying teachers aren't working very hard. Like, why are we paying them all this money? Literally, there were commercials mm -hmm. that ran that said some version of that message. And so I think that the Dalton McGinty years with Michael Fullen as the sort of chief architect were very effective at taking the rancor out of that, building relationships with the teachers and the unions, increasing teacher retention rates, and building capacity for schools to be able to do those, do those things. And so I think your point about some sort of hybrid is in the years since then, the goals around the world have gotten more ambitious. Michael's been running this new pedagogies for deep learning, and Sarah and I are studying an effort that's been going on in Ottawa Catholic for the last nine years around deep learning that seems to be making some progress. So I think Michael's goals have gotten more ambitious, and that may be gradually translating over there. And I think another point to build on what you just said, that when Ontario tried to step back from the political edge on those early transformation days and put an, an educator sort of in charge of the work, put Michael in charge of the work, that was such a huge message. And I think such a great example to the rest of the rest of the systems and jurisdictions around the world that Michael wasn't a political figure. He was just a, such a well-known, respected thinker and, and writer and educator. 
that, that it sent a really good message. And that certainly helped us in British Columbia because when we started, it was about educators doing the work. And yes, of course, their government was a huge part of that. And I was in government at the time. And, but it was about educators talking to educators about and, and parents and kids and so on, but educators leading the conversation as opposed to just politicians. And, and that was a really important lesson that we all learned from Ontario. So could you briefly summarize for people who aren't familiar, maybe like three pillars or briefly sort of some of the key elements of the BC approach? For sure. When we began this work in British Columbia, we were sitting at in the top five of PISA as a province. We were strong. So we intentionally didn't talk about this is to increase our reading rates or this is to improve our math scores or those things because we were already doing quite well on those things. But it was very much a conversation of that is necessary but not sufficient. And it allowed us then to focus on what are the other things that are necessary and got us into the competencies and those kinds of things. And we never lost track of reading, writing, mathematics. I mean, those core things continue to be super important, but that was never the focus of the transformation. And our bet was, and I think it's turned out to be true, that as we engage kids differently in their learning and so on, those others, those kinds of scores and skills would rise along with that as kids got increasingly engaged. Where we did talk about those things was with our Indigenous students, because we also knew that there was a huge part of our population that was underserved by our system forever. And you can't talk about the transformation work in BC without talking about sort of the reconciliation work with our First Peoples and our Indigenous families and students. Those are sort of two sides of the same coin. If we're not equitable, then what's the point? If this isn't, again, for all and meeting the needs of all learners, what's the point? So I'd say one, one of the pillars was competencies. What are the skills that we, our kids need to have to be, not just be successful in the future, but to change the future, to write the future? Because you can't predict next week, let alone 20 years from now, what are the things that we can be, that we can be fairly certain about? And those to us were the competencies, the skills that students needed to work interculturally to, to be able to communicate, to be able to think well, and so on. That was one pillar. The Indigenous component was another pillar of that work. And one of the things that we have learned so deeply from our Indigenous colleagues here in the province and, and around the world is that you can't do learning in a factory. Learning's a hugely social community kind of a, an approach. And some of the structures that we have, massive high schools and big factory kinds of things, don't really work very well. So how can we get back to learning on a human scale? Someone should do a podcast about human scale learning <laughs> because you just can't, you can't do the kinds of things that we wanted to accomplish in, in a factory. And I, and I think the third pillar that I talk about is having students become architects of their own learning, moving from student voice to student agency. And you can't have student agency without teacher agency. If you don't trust your teachers, why do you have them? And we've got brilliant teachers in this province. 
And we would all agree that as we headed down this road uh, and continued to go down this road of transformation, everyone in the system needs to think about their roles, think about the skills that they need to, to operate in the new system, and how do we collectively not reskill, that sounds like you're redoing something at a factory floor, but become transformational learners ourselves as adults in the system to help kids understand what transformational learning looks like for them. I'll stop with those three kind of big ideas that we had. I think that last piece really resonates from what I've seen in my visits and conversations with people in BC, this notion that the mode of change needs to parallel and instantiate the vision of learning and being that you want to create. So if you're trying to create transformational learning, you can't do that if you think the person at the top has all the wisdom and the people at the bottom are going to be implementing it. I remember once going to a school in the U.S. that had democracy in the title, but it was a no excuse of school and the kids were sitting in rows and lines and every minute was being micromanaged. And I just couldn't help but think they could spend every day 24-7 learning about democracy, but at some fundamental level, something is wrong. This place doesn't have any sort of democracy in its feel. And so I think the way that BC has done reform, which is to set some different but pretty broad competencies and then create opportunities for teachers in groups closer to the ground to think about what that would mean for particular subjects and particular grade levels really nicely instantiates or mirrors or fractalizes or symmetries or something like that, the kind of learning and way of being that they're seeking. So that seems really important and noteworthy and different from what I see in a lot of places. I think you're right. And especially as, as you know, I travel around and look at other systems and so on. I was in government and sort of leading this work at the time. And one of the first questions I asked in, inside, inside the ministry was, we're talking, starting to talk about in those days, we use the term 21st century learning and transformational learning. And so the question I asked inside was, are we a 21st century organization? And we weren't. <laughs> we were a colonial organization, massively hierarchical. People would come into my office and, and look, because I was in a role that was outside the hierarchy. It was kind of a weird role and people didn't quite know how I fit in the hierarchy. So people would come in and they'd look up at my ceiling while they're talking to me. And I would think, well, is no eye contact a thing here? And what they were doing is counting ceiling tiles because you could tell how important a person was by the size of their office. And the easiest way to do that is to count the number of ceiling tiles. <laughs> what a great oh, story. They're a seven and a half. Wow. <laughs> or they're only a four. And <laughs> sounds crazy, but true. And how geographically close your office was to the deputy minister's office. So those two things together told people how important you were. And when I came in and, and sort of after the first few months didn't have an office, it was like, count the tiles. I don't yeah, Good luck. So we very publicly started this conversation about the Ministry of Education. Are we a 21st century learning organization? And if not, which we weren't, what should we be doing to transform ourselves? Because how can we lead this conversation if we're not seen to be doing the same kind of work that we're asking the system to do, to examine themselves and think about themselves and, and see how they fit in that? Because you're right, you can't talk transformation and drive it downhill from the top. It has to work differently than that. And we wanted to position the ministry, not as the pyramid of the hierarchy, but as a place that asks really good questions. 
we, we want it to be a, a center for debate and conversation and inward looking our, uh, within the entire system across the province of how are we doing and what do we think about this? And really wanted to get to that idea that we're doing this with the field, not to the field. We're doing this with teachers, not to teachers. We're doing this with students, not to students, and with parents, not to parents. And I think that was important that we also be seen to be doing that with ourselves. So that really leads us nicely into the next question. A big part of the quote-unquote Canadian model in both Ontario and BC is trust. Trust of teachers, students, educators, and a big hallmark of the American approach has been lack of trust. If we don't measure exactly what people are doing, like how do we know they're doing a good job and how do we know students are learning and so on and so forth. And then that in turn is connected to, in the U.S. context, uh, kind of the rampant individualism we have and the distrust of government, which goes back to the founding and the way that the Constitution was constructed, you know, in a way that basically protects the people against the government. And we've seen all of this around masks and who are you to tell me I need to wear a mask and you can emphasize the public good, but this is my individual right to do what I want. I remember once we were hosting a meeting in the U.S. and there was one Canadian in the room and he was just getting more and more fed up. And eventually, like he started to walk out and he turned around and he said, you guys are fucked. Like you've got the most lawyers in the world. Everything is about blame and accountability. Like that's just not how you build a good school system. A good school system is built on relationships and trust and social capital. And you're just like your DNA. is just like not suited to that. And no matter what you say, you've got to contend with that and you're not contending with it. And, and for um, the record, that wasn't me, by the way. It was not you. So yeah. So um, do you see any of that kind of individualism in Canada? And how does one overcome that kind of freedom-seeking individualism in this process? Well, that's a big question. To begin, I, I mean, you're putting your finger on trust is huge. And I would say in BC, there wasn't a lot of trust. There certainly wasn't trust between government and the union. There, there was a huge animosity. What we were able to do through the conversations was to come together on the things we could agree on. Let's talk about what we agree about, not all the stuff we disagree about. And again, because I was not of government, but I was in government and leading this work, but was a field educator, I, I could sort of go and have those conversations. And we sort of, you know, and I'd say it was probably about 85%. We can agree on 85% of the stuff of what we want for kids and how we think schools should be and the kinds of changes and transformational things we'd like to see happen for the experiences of kids and, and students and and transformation's not done at the expense of teachers <laughs> it also you know it's it's again with teachers and 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 just makes life better i don't know of too many teachers that got into the business of teaching because they just love covering a certain piece of curriculum i think most got there because they want to do good things for kids and end up in this curriculum coverage crazy treadmill thing because that's where the system ultimately puts them so there was there, there wasn't a lot of trust but because we could decide we're going to agree on like 85% of these things and we're going to so let's talk about those things 85% of the time 
And yeah, when it comes time to collective bargaining and to looking at, at contracts and so on, we're going to disagree on some stuff or other people in government will disagree on some stuff. But we can sort of separate those things out. And so I think the public started to see us talking about the same kinds of things. Wow, are people actually in this together? That's different. And I was really clear as a government person, you know, I, I would I would go into a community and I did this for like a year and a half. I just traveled the province and I'd meet typically with parents and students and teachers and school board officials and whoever wanted to show up. And I'd do my thing and we'd have a big community meeting and I'd say, now I guarantee that most of you tomorrow will go, that was interesting. And you may agree or disagree with whatever I've said whatever we've talked about. And you're going to go to someone you trust in the field. You're going to go to your child's teacher or your child, the principal at your child's school. And you're going to say, I heard this guy in a black suit from government say these things. Is he full of crap or what? And the trust is built on that next conversation. The trust is built on the conversation that the parent has with their child's teacher or principal, someone that they already trust and know to go, no, actually, you know, they're, you know, I agree with most of that. And these are the, you know, and, and then that's where trust, that's where trust builds. So, so I think that's, that's super important. The other part I'd say about trust was within government, because one of the parts of building trust that we found is we would put drafts of things out because we used a quite a different writing development process than we typically done in the province. We would put out drafts that were clearly drafty and they might be 65% baked when we first put them out. Because if you put out stuff that's all finished, then then why have input? And that was terrifying for some folks in government to go, well, you're putting stuff out that's wrong. Well, it's not wrong. It's just not finished yet because we want time for input. And draft means draft. You know, I remember talking with someone from one of the mining groups about where things had shifted around in the curriculum and outcomes and what part of of everything comes out of the ground that you know we have in our house starts with something a rock in the ground kind of a thing and well it's just draft so come and bring that input and then people would see their input in the next iteration and the next iteration so people started to go oh so you mean draft means draft mm-hmm. yeah because we're building this together we're co-constructing and co-constructing means we have to trust but that was harder to build i think initially on the government side you're putting out things that are going to be controversial and aren't completely finished and vetted yet. No, because they're not finished because that's what draft means. I very much resonate with that. And, you know, you and I know that even in the small organization that we work on together, we've had some conflicts when people have put out drafts that weren't really drafts because they basically were done and they thought they had Mm -hmm. it the way they wanted. And other people are like, well, wait, do you really want input or do you not want input? So I think that's something that's true on a tiny scale and also true on a much a much larger scale. And then also the point about you build trust through conversations and amongst conversations amongst people who already know each other and have trust and credibility with each other. I think during the pandemic, we saw this in spades that we just had a really hard conflict, which is that parents, for the most part, after the first few months, like really wanted their kids to go to school. They thought they were learning more. They needed them out of the house and weren't the safety things weren't too great for young kids. And then conversely, like teachers were worried that they were going to get the pandemic and die. I mean, mm-hmm. just to put a like a fine point on it. So like, how do you handle that situation? You handle it through 
lots of conversations and really recognizing that everybody is coming from a good place and parents don't want their kids' teachers to die and teachers don't want the kids not to learn. We all have the same goals in the big picture. So I think districts where they had a lot of those conversations, where people felt like they were part of the discussions, where there were some opt-outs for older teachers and things like that just ended up in a lot better place than places which were just my way or the highway. And it it wasn't even so much the substance of where they landed. It was the process of whether people felt there had really been a discussion that represented all points of view. So mm-hmm. I, I do think it's a really hard road to hoe in the U.S. I think there is a lot of distrust baked into our broader political system. And there is a strong individualist tendency, which makes things more difficult. But I think there are lots of examples, especially at smaller scales, like at the level of a school or a small district where, you know, through building relationships and having lots of conversations, good things have happened. Joel, as you, you know, you've done so much research around the world, but especially in the U.S., you and Sarah and, and you with others, what do you think? For sure, there's lessons to be learned from sort of the Canadian style or whatever you might call that, the Canadian approach or the BC approach. How would that play? And maybe it could be a bit more specific. Are there places that you know of where the approach has more of that feel to it than sort of a top-down government-driven? As an assistant deputy minister under the School Act, I was allowed to ban words from the English language. It's a little-known fact, but I used it. <laughs> um, words like implementation and pilot, those things that, that, that sort of had this sense of, you know, because ministers would ask me, when, when will you be done? Three months? Two years? And I'd say, you know, uh, well, it took us 150 years to get here. And to encourage them to see that we're on, we're on a journey. And yeah, there, there, there are some markers along the way that they could sort of take credit for and, and show that the right work is happening. But really, it, it, it's a long-term affair. Are there places that you see in the U.S. that are moving away from the sort of the top-down approaches and are being successful with other approaches, other ways of getting to a more a deeper learning structure? One place that we both have some connection with is the state of Kentucky, which is led by Jason Glass, who's been part of a group that we've been part mm-hmm. of for some years now. Jason is a native Kentuckian who went off to Colorado and a few other places and then has come back to become the commissioner in Kentucky. And the first thing he did when he became the state chief or chief learner, as he calls himself, is really try to find out what the people of Kentucky wanted for their education system. So they did something like 600 empathy interviews across the state and they had students help in the development and the doing of those interviews. And Kentucky is a politically complicated state, like normal red-blue divides, Mitch McConnell's state, very blue around the universities in Lexington and so forth. And so I think what Jason was trying to do was, what do we want as Kentuckians out of our graduates? It's not a left-right thing. It's like a Kentucky thing. And some of the things they said were just, to speaking of human, were very human. You know, like parents wanted schools to be listening if their kid was in trouble or needed help with something. You know, everybody wanted the districts and the states to be more human and responsive to particular concerns and so on and so forth. So I think there is a blueprint to this 
maybe not a blueprint, but like a way of doing this work, which I think translates broadly. One other thing I wanted to say about that is we're doing a meeting that we're holding amongst a bunch of these districts and states around the theme of courage this year. And we asked Jason, because we're doing the meeting in Kentucky, where there are examples of courage. And he said, you know, this doesn't feel like particularly like courageous to me. It just feels like this is the way that you do the work. Like the way that you do the work is you talk to people and you see what they want. And then you try to develop structures and systems and ways that enable people to do those things. So to some people, this might seem, you know, radical and scary. Like what if those 600 empathy interviews yield a different priority than Jason had coming in? But his view is sure, like the department gets to shape it a little bit. But, you know, if it comes from the people of Kentucky, it'll have much deeper roots. And Kentucky's a big place. And if you want to change things, you're going to need a lot of people in lots of different places to be doing different things. And you're not going to monitor every moment of those things, nor would you want to. So mm-hmm. that's an example. And I think that's such a good example. And sometimes trusting groups of people, you need courage to do that. Because there might be other other factions or other other folks that are going, as you said, what if they give us the wrong answer, whatever the wrong answer might be, or what if it's X, Y, or Z, and that idea of courageous patience. Sometimes you have to be courageous to to go slow, and especially with political timelines the way they are, you know, up here we're kind of on four or five year cycles, and you know exactly how government sort of operates in each of those years as they begin a mandate and work through it and, and come out of a mandate which is a longer cycle than the US, I think, uh, where things seem to politically be in, in churn. But there's lots of pressure to, to wrap something up by the end of the four years, can the little tiny four-year cycles. And really, this work doesn't, doesn't happen that way. And I think sometimes that, I think Jason's a great example of, of being courageous to do the right thing. Sometimes it takes courage to do what he would say, it's just the right thing to do. There's one more topic I want to hit on before we wrap up, which is uh, racial and ethnic diversity. Whenever I talk about this in the U.S. context, people say the Scandinavian welfare states are more generous because uh, there's less racial diversity. And when people see the people who might be the beneficiaries of schools or other welfare state items as similar to themselves, they're more likely to be generous. And with respect to the things that we're talking about here, trying to build trust in all directions when there's significant racial diversity is just really, really challenging. So I just wonder how you've handled that in British Columbia and whether you think that having less racial diversity makes it easier to do this kind of work. That's such a good question. And, and it's sort of one of the, it's, it's hard to know because um, I only know what, what, what we know. British Columbia certainly is one of the more diverse provinces next to Ontario and maybe Quebec and growing diversity. But that's really in the in the metro area in sort of Vancouver, Surrey area. Much of the province is not that diverse, with the exception of our indigenous peoples and our first peoples that have been here forever. So that's that's been a huge focus of our work is to ensure that our indigenous students are not harmed in this work. And that it's not just for privileged kids. This isn't ju- just transformation for the privileged families, but for everyone. And so, by, by I think keeping our eye on the on on that, 
and making that central to this work has helped the equity conversation. It's, it's moved the equity conversation right up front and center in this whole transformation piece. And I think that's helpful for everyone. In terms of, does that make it easier or harder? I, you know, my take on the Scandinavian countries, yeah, there, there is some of that, that they are more the same than different. And I know some of them have reached out to British Columbia because some parts feels the same. And yet they're sort of at the beginnings of the immigration waves that BC saw a number of years ago and trying to help us figure out how we um, work through that. But it was very much, and I think what we had to do in BC was to see diversity as a huge asset as opposed to something to be overcome. What is it that we can learn? And certainly that's a, a feature of the curriculum design is not just trying to bolt on Indigenous learning outcomes onto a sort of a standard white curriculum, but to more fully integrate and to really base on. So all of the curriculum writing that happened in BC started with first people's principles of learning, started with worldviews and understandings. How can we see the world in a different way? Because that makes us all stronger to make sure that we're um, putting that central to our, to our work. Does it make it easier than in the U.S.? Potentially. I don't think it's a deal breaker, but it's certainly a thing that, that I think bears more research and more, and more study. But trust is trust, and working collectively is working collectively. And we know that with our Indigenous communities, when we went out with this transformational conversation, and another one of the words that I banned was consultation. I would say to groups, I promise I will not come and consult with you again. We're going to build together from the beginning. Because consultation to so many of our, our Indigenous colleagues um, and communities was a dirty word because they had not been consulted with. They had been told, we're going to have a meeting and we're going to tell, and government will tell you what's going to happen, which isn't consultation. And so he said, we're going to co-construct, not consult. And that is a much slower process, but I think far deeper and I think that kind of an approach works regardless of the sort of ethnic diversity of your population. Yeah. What's your take on that, Joel? You're in this space a lot too. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with everything you just said. I think it's clear that it, it makes it tougher, especially when in national politics, we have a lot of people making hay by stirring up racial resentment and xenophobia as a way of creating political gain. And it's a lot easier to stir it up and inflame negative feelings than it is to carefully construct a good container in which positive feelings come out. I do think that is, that's working against us. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if we really like boiled it down, teachers, even white teachers want the best for students, even students of color, which isn't to say that there may not be implicit bias or low expectations or other things in a lot of cases. But ultimately, like no one gets into it thinking, I want to penalize students. And so I think trying to build on those common objectives is really important. I think the thing that you said before about making schools more human, if we weren't in these sort of factory model batch processing-esque systems and there were more time and space for students and teachers and students and teachers and parents to connect and understand where each other are coming from 
I think when that time and space is provided, often good things come out of those situations. So I'm not trying to underestimate the sort of scale of the the challenge and the level of kind of unlearning that needs to happen, but I but I do think it's possible. And I think it happens one conversation at a time and mm. those sorts of things. All right. So let's um I thought we could do a brief Canada US lightning round since it's just us. So Rod, favorite chain restaurant. Yesterday I ate at Freshy. One of the things I like about Freshy is it's like salad, salad, salads. And if you get to dressing on the side, you don't have 10,000 calories and it's a place to get fast, fresh, good stuff. I'm going Freshy. See, I'm staying away from coffee shops because they're just evil and bad. And I drink too much coffee because I love it. How about you, Joel? Favorite chain? This is really from earlier in my life, but I'll, I'll go with Taco Bell. You know, you can get three tacos for four or five dollars. You can't beat that. But uh, that definitely shows the U.S.-Canada divide. Taco Bell and Freshies. My my digestive system is not really up for Taco Bell anymore. I've aged out of it a bit, but it, it was a favorite for a long time. If we're, go, if we're going that far back, I'd go with McDonald's because they're when they first opened up here in in Victoria, I was in grade twelve, and you could go in there late at night and you could get three hamburgers and a coffee for two bucks. Wow. That's craziness. It was craziness. And you'd have to walk because, you know, none of us could afford gas any either. But it was, uh, you know, three burgers and those little smush burgers. But yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of carbs for not much money. But I wouldn't say that was like for culinary delight. Sure. What do you think? You've been to Canada. Let's talk about best place to visit. Where's a great place that you've been or want to go and want to visit in Canada? The best place I've been to in Canada is Banff. Absolutely gorgeous. That's where my wife and I got engaged while camping in uh, Banff. So I have other reasons for some fond memories from there. I remember going into a, a Subway sandwiches and asking the guy there, do you just take this kind of beauty for granted? Does it strike you that like every day you get to walk out and look at these mountains? And he was like, what do you want on your sandwich? Come on, man. <laughs> it's like transcendently beautiful in a way that kind of moves my soul. And I'd love to go back. Brad, how about you? There's so many amazing places. Banff would be on the list. Lake Louise. I'd go a bit farther north up where there's fewer tourists up to Columbia Ice Fields and so on. But I'm going to go with Haida Gwaii, islands off the west coast of British Columbia. There's something magical and transcendent about that place. You get off the plane, and I've been there a number of times, and it happens every time, and you and there's your spine tingles. There's something magical about that place that's uh, deeply amazing. Wow. All right, I'll put that on my list. And then last yeah. but not least, something that is better in the U.S. than in Canada. Portion size. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a double-edged sword? <laughs> Just when you're visiting for that, you know, that one time and you can go down and gain five pounds in, in a weekend. <laughs> when the meal comes and you go, wow, is this for the whole table or like... Uh, that is hilarious. Every, everything's just bigger. What do you think? I don't know. Professional sports the leagues are here and there's like 
except for hockey, there's just like one or two teams in Canada. So I would say that the epicenter of that is, is here, but it's, it's a short list. Oh, I don't know. We're still desperately holding on to the CFL, which is becoming an American almost starter league, but yeah, professional sports would, I would, I think be one. I'd agree with that. So Rod, uh, take us home. How can uh, people get in touch with us and for sure. So this is episode one of our second season. We're going to try a few things differently and a few things the same. And we really want to capitalize on the great, some of the great things that I think we did last season. And we got some great feedback on some things and want to try some new things as well. And we want to make sure that we're bringing you a high quality product and that we're, we're feeding your soul with some of these st- stories and conversations and people. So we would in- encourage you to get hold of us at freerangehumanspod at gmail.com or uh, through the Twitterverse. Uh, we're always out there on, 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 in Twitterland. And give us your thoughts and ideas and thumbs up, thumbs down and, and ways that we can improve and people we could be talking to and so on. We'd like to get more engaged with the audience, Joel. We've talked about that and, and finding ways to work the technology so that we can engage in more real time with folks in the audience. And we're going to experiment with that a little bit this year. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. This is Rod Allen. And this is Joel Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Cheers, everyone.